Thresholds Radio with your host, John Stevenson. Recording the UFO activity. And there in the darkness, on the ground, knocking on the walls, Shadow. something crawling towards you. It's obviously You're listening to Thresholds Radio. I'm Anthony K. With me is John Stevenson. On today's show, we have Jeff Mudgett. Also, we're going to be talking about alien abductions, human mutilations, and more with Butch Wyszkowski. That and much more on Thresholds Radio. We're going to start off the show right away with Jeff Mudgett right after this quick commercial break. We'll be right back. TheEdgeOnAir.com wants to invite you to be abducted. Tune in Friday night starting at 10 p.m. for Thresholds Radio. Host John Stevenson is your guide through the realm of the paranormal with an hour-long radio show sure to give you the heebie-jeebies. Check out UFO-Info.com to learn more. It's Thresholds Radio every Friday night at 10 p.m. on TheEdgeOnAir.com. Welcome back. With us now is my good friend Jeff Mudgett, author of Bloodstains and a amazing book about H.H. Holmes, a.k.a. Jack the Ripper. How you doing today, Jeff? Ah, it's a great day, John, and it's always a pleasure to be back with you on Thresholds Radio. So, you actually did something you said you weren't going to do. You were just in the basement of the murder castle again. You know, you caught me. I, uh, I made that statement on uh, your show uh, quite a while ago, uh, and you know, after writing about it in uh, chapter 27 in the book. The, uh, the first time that I went down into the basement, uh, you know, an hour later, I came out a changed man in my uh, beliefs, uh, including religious. Uh, and I told myself uh, once was enough. Uh, no man needed to see and feel and hear what I did in that, in that room down below where, well, maybe the most horrible room ever built by man and uh, once was enough and then when the uh, people at the history channel contacted me and said that they wanted to uh, reenact me uh, going into the basement with a full film crew audio crew the whole professional works uh, behind me uh, for national tv and hopefully uh, they were excited about maybe uh, capturing some of what went on that first time um, I thought about it quite a while, actually, and um, the chance that maybe something incredible could be uh, recorded or proven was too much. Uh, in the end, it was too much, John, and I decided to uh, do it one more time, go down, go down the steps and uh, see if I could uh, stir up some of the lost souls that I saw the first time. How did you do this time, Jeff? Did you have, uh, you know, a little episode like the last time, or was this one better? No, there was uh, not not. It wasn't the same as the first time, John. And I don't know. I don't, I'm not an expert in paranormal. Quite frankly, I don't know much about it. I do know that the first time I went down, 
much of the time, John, I was by myself while uh, my good friend Kim and the, uh, the uh, post office custodian was at the other end of the uh, basement. We're talking about a huge building. You know, it's the United States Post Office. Right. Yeah. So this time I was never alone, John. I had uh, 20, 25 people all around me. Well, that's true. You had a film crew, so you're, you're never by yourself. We had directors, we had producers, we had makeup, we had audio, we had shading, we had uh, two full film uh, camera crews. I don't know, like I say, I don't know much about the paranormal. I'll leave that to you. Mm -hmm. But I would imagine the chances of actually hearing anything pure are next to nothing. And uh, I don't know how spirits or lost souls feel about that many people or not. Um, I'll, I'll, like I say, I'll leave that to you, but uh, there was very little chance that anything pure was going to come across like it did that first time. Yeah, probably not. You never know. I mean, amazingly enough, uh, they could have caught something on their microphones or their cameras and don't even know it yet. I, I mean, you, you actually never know because there's no one really knows and there's no rhyme or reason to when you can pick up a spirit or an entity somewhere. You know, I, I think you're right. Plus, John, you have some of the most incredible camera and audio equipment in the world on this shoot with uh, editing and um you know, the teams back in Hollywood that'll uh, just dissect this stuff and go through it with a fine tooth comb. You've got a good chance of finding something none of us expected. Um, like I like I say that the camera I was I was shocked. The cameras are one hundred and fifty thousand dollars each. John. Yeah, I know. They're, they're pretty cool looking, too. Wouldn't you like to have one of those toys? You know, the <laughs> camera, I was I was surprised the cameramen were these big guys that looked like they played college football. The, these cameras were not something. Uh, easy to carry around much and they and these guys had them on their shoulders all day long from six six to six how many camera guys did you have filming this you know multiple angles i assume oh yeah there was at least three um and there were camera crews on the outside filming the boundaries of the post office while we were down below but this is just the prelude to the the big event we have coming up down the line right now yeah right now we're working with the uh, pbs um for uh they wanted to do a fundraiser, actually, and uh, this fundraiser in this uh, brainstorming session that they had about uh, what they wanted to put on TV turned into uh, them being very excited about an overnight filming of an investigation, an actual investigation this time, not a reenactment. Right. With with the A-Team, like you and I have discussed on mm -hmm. your show before, the best paranormal investigators in the world, including the best skeptics in the world. You know, because I want this verifiable. I want, I want, uh, I want someone to come up and say, you know, those guys were the best. They were good. They did it the right way, and I was there to make sure they did. Exactly. Um, yeah. So uh, we're working uh, over that right now. Um, I think uh, we've uh, we have we have about ten checks on the list we need uh, marked off, and we're through about four or five already. And no one, uh, John, has. Uh, has gotten our way. In fact, they're all, they all seem to be uh, very excited about the, uh, the uh, procedure, including the post office was thrilled to uh, be a part of it. And uh, I, don't, uh, I don't think we're going to have any trouble. Yeah, I'm excited about this. I've been to all kinds of places and have seen, well, you've seen some of my uh, photos and videos I've got too. I've, always, I've got some amazing evidence, but I am just dying to get my camera systems down there. And they're going to run from the second we get down there till the second we leave the entire time. And uh, 
I, I just can't wait to go through all that infrared footage and see what we got. You know, John, I envision you as the uh, commander of the control center um, of the electronics because, uh, quite frankly, I, I want to spend some time down there by myself. You know, there are people that tell me because of who I am, there's a trigger. There's something different than just a normal human being walking through that basement. Something about... Oh, exactly. You know, the people that were killed and tortured down there, they might uh, they might think of me different than oh, the I, others. I agree 100%. I mean, those people plus actual possibly even H.H. Uh, H. Holmes himself, you never know. You're going to be a trigger. I don't even want to be in the round you. What I want to do is go through, pre-wire the building and sit at the control center and watch it. I, I want you to be going through there yourself with as few people as possible around you, actually. Yeah, I'd like to go through there by myself. I'd like to, uh, I've thought about this, I'd like to uh, set up a chair in the uh, one room that we know is common common ground with the post office now and the murder castle basement then. I'd like to have you, uh, you watch what happens to me down there by myself and then maybe have... Uh, you know, that uh, that psychic we're going to put on the team, you know, the best one we right. can find. Um, then have him come down, him and I alone, see what he pulls up or she pulls up from the experience. And then uh, and then after that, let you uh, let you direct uh, how you think best we're best able to come up with something. Because you and I both know it's maybe a one in a million chance of uh, coming up with uh, evidence that uh, we'd be proud to show the world. Exactly. I just think I just think. That place, um, like Harper's Magazine said a few years ago, well, a, lo a lot of years ago, they said that if ever the paranormal is going to be proven absolutely, it's going to be at 63rd and Wallace in that basement. And I think they're right. I got a hunch, too, because I've talked to numerous people in the paranormal field that have been to all kinds of places. And I mentioned this place. And they're all excited about it. So, I mean, it's it's everybody, you know, would love to check this place out. You know, and, and think about being part of the team that may actually, and let, once again, we're talking a one in a million or one in 10 million chance. But if it exists, if this it, these energies, and I'm convinced it's an energy, it's not these ghost things that people uh, watch in the movies and think about in their dreams. It's an energy that we need to capture in order to show. But if we can prove that it exists, John, like Einstein said it did, um, and showcase it with uh, evidence that is verifiable, think about it. You could change the way man thinks about our existence on this earth. Yeah, the potential is amazing there. It's just any, well, anytime, not necessarily always there, but I mean, here is it's amazing for multiple reasons because of the past history there, and also it's never been done. You know, which is, you know, that's pretty cool right there alone. You know, very much so. And and I, uh, you know, I'll let you jump in here, John. But uh, I'm not quite sure why the theories are that, you know, these these terribly tortured and horribly mangled souls are the ones that uh, that stay, you know, awaiting being released. But uh, if that is true, if that's why souls, you know, are. Uh, are chained, so to speak, Right. then this is the place that it would have happened that way. Well, that seems to be the theory. Again, there's no one, there's no experts in this field, and don't let them tell you they are, because none of us know. But it seems to be places that have had very bad, violent events tend to be the ones that have spirits or some sort of activity or leftover energy or, or something you know we don't know what it is but it, it always seems to be at you know very bad places which that place definitely is 
You know, the the uh, History Channel guys just uh, came from a uh, shoot. They finished a show on the uh, ghosts of Gettysburg. So you're right. That's that's the theory, and that's what the uh, quote-unquote experts believe. Yeah, Gettysburg is another amazing place. My gosh, I'd like to get out there, too. So how did the... Uh how the actual shoot go, Joe? I mean, we know it paranormal thing, but how did you enjoy being there with the Hollywood thing? And uh, kind of give us a behind the scenes on that, if you don't mind. No, I'm glad you asked that question because it's something that, you know, we somebody can deny, but we all are fascinated with a Hollywood film crew shoot. And my God, to be a part of it, I, I never, never in my wildest dreams believed it. And uh, here are all these people focused on uh, how I look in front of the camera, which is uh-huh. Is, is terrible enough as it is. But, uh, you know, it was a, uh, it came across when we first, um, when Susan and Sherman and I first showed up at the, sh- at the location as some out of sync, totally chaotic mass of disorganized, unfocused human beings that looked like they belonged at a soup kitchen line. <laughs> I swear. As you realized and began to learn each of their jobs and watched how they fit into the group as a whole, it became amazing, John. And by the end of the day, you could tell it was a fine, well-oiled machine that hadn't missed a beat the entire day. Everybody has their job and they all know it and no one has to be told what to do is what it is. Simply amazing. Uh, the fun parts were watching the uh, the two directors arguing about angles and light and exactly. shots, what I was supposed to say, what I wasn't supposed to say. And uh, at the end, I think they realized that I was a stubborn uh, son <laughs> of a gun yeah. I was, a, and I wasn't going to be uh, directed much. Uh, they just pretty much let me go and uh, – one of the one of the interesting scenes, John, was uh, when we went um, open the door down the stairway into the basement. The one director had my book open, and he was going through the pages, and uh, he was saying, "I want to recreate that feeling you had in your gut and uh, that terror you had going down into the down these steps." And I turned to both of them and I said, "You don't need to recreate anything. I'm scared to death right now, right here, to go back down the second time. You you're." My face has the fear on it. Just turn the cameras on and you've got it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, did you get that? When I was just on the Ghost Adventurers, I had to do lines over and over. You had to change the, what you said, the way you said it, the feelings. Did you get that where you had to do the same lines over and over? Oh, yeah. We, we, uh, we uh, redid lines uh, the whole day. And there was, a, there was a part of me, you know me, John. I, there was a part of me I started getting a little irritated, a little uh-huh. frustrated. <laughs> A little angry, and then I told myself, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! This is the way their this is the way their their life is. This is their job. This is their work. They are paid a lot of money to make sure this thing comes out perfect on TV. Exactly. Calm down, calm down. <laughs> Say it again. Try to do exactly what they need. And you know, I I, I got to, I got on the right side of the fence, and I came out okay." You know what it is, is they have a vision of how it should look. Even though you might think something different, it's how they want it to look, and that's that's what they want you to do. There's no doubt. They have a vision. They've been thinking about it for uh, weeks. Um, they've put it down on paper. Uh, I was uh, amazed at their preparation, um, how they were able to come up with uh, a lot of facts about Holmes, John, which... Uh, would have made a historian proud. They've, they'd obviously done their homework, and uh, they came they came ready for bear. 
And I was busy those days, too. I wish I wasn't. Otherwise, I would have met you out there. But sometimes you just got to take care of work and you can't go out and have fun. I, I would have. Uh, I, I got uh, Susan in. Susan was able to go into the basement with us because she's the one that saved the entire project. The History Channel uh, people had irritated the post office to where the post office was on the verge of uh, denying the entire request. Uh-huh. Susan, Susan jumped in. Um, befriended the uh, media relations um, executive in Washington, D.C. for the post office and fixed the entire project at the last minute. So Susan was clearly entitled, and she, uh, oh, from the start, she had, wanted to, she had wanted to go into the basement. So she went down with the team. But as far as anyone else going with us on this History Channel shoot, they had three or four security, security guards there. I don't, I don't know if it would have been possible. Oh, I know. I mean, like I say, when I was just doing the ghost adventures, too, we, they had police everywhere. No one was going in that place. No one was allowed in. They they only wanted the people they were talking to, and that's it. There's just there's a lockdown when they do that kind of stuff because they just can't have people walking in and out or making noise in the background. No, and uh, that's, you know, like, like we've, we've talked about already, that's their business. They know what they need, and they need control of the environment. Exactly. Now, uh, what you were telling me earlier... PBS is talking about doing two things down there, possibly, weren't they? No, they were. T- we're going to go into the basement. They they were fascinated with the idea of this investigation. They think the Chicago market just craves it, and they uh, when they uh, started putting uh, money down on paper and saw that the, their budget was okay, because I told them, I said, listen, um, this A team, these this team of the best investigators in the world, and we're going. I'm going to I'm going to make sure it is. These people are going to do this for the good of uh, science. Right. You're not going to pay them. They're not going to. They're going to come for this opportunity of a lifetime to be in this investigation. And uh, if they if they don't accept that, we'll get the next one. And I said there'll be a line of uh, great people that want to do this. So when they started seeing that, and the PBS budget is limited, John. Mm-hmm. They don't have they don't have the money that the big studios have, obviously. Um, and then when Susan promised that she could get permission from the from the post office to use the basement without charging the rent that they charged the uh, history channel, right? We uh, we started seeing the light, the eye, their eyes light up in excitement to where they are now on board 100% about filming this investigation and. Um, having John Borowski and I, you know, you remember John Borowski, the uh, director of the incredible documentary about H.H. H. Holmes? Yeah. John and I are going to co-host the uh, Halloween fundraiser special for PBS. Um, and they want to make it the, you know, the Holmes, they want to emphasize Holmes during the show for the pledge drive. Oh, that's cool. Um, we're going to do some of it at the Portage Theater. The Portage Theater is going to allow us to uh, film on stage there and show the uh, documentary and then uh, break it up and uh, go up and do questions and answers with the uh, Chicago audience, which excites me greatly. And uh, that's going to be a separate taping from the investigation in the basement. Could you do it at the Portage Theater? Because that place needs some support right now. It's going through kind of a rough time. I hear they're trying to close it. Exactly. And I think this taping with PBS might be uh, something which gives it a uh, the hand up maybe it needs that's an amazing theater, too, for you people listening. There's petitions going around about this. Make sure you look it up and try to find it, because they're trying to uh, basically get rid of this theater and turn it into a church, I believe is what I saw. So go out there and support this, because this place is an amazing place. 
It was my first speech about the book and H.H. H. Holmes, and quite frankly, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know if anyone would enjoy my talk about the monster. I didn't know if they'd boo me off the stage because of who I was. Um, it was packed. Um, it was put on by Ursula Bielski and uh, her ghost conference. It was a great event. Yeah, I was there. And that background behind you was just so kick-ass. <laughs> Why don't you describe it instead of me, John? That was just the, the huge picture of H.H. Uh, H. Holmes. But, I mean, my gosh, how big was that screen? <laughs> had to be 60 feet across. Just standing behind you. It was like uh, you had to be there, actually. It's just the coolest thing you ever saw. And it, it kind of added that extra oomph to the already amazing stuff Jeff was talking about. But you had a great crowd there. I mean, you didn't have to worry about nothing. As you soon found out, the people were just thrilled to hear you talk about this. And when that, when, when uh, Ursula's people put the uh, picture of the black and white of Holmes and these eyes had to be six feet wide, you know, the eyes. <laughs> and his them. eyes are memorizing as it is, too. Oh, they're terrifying. And you could have heard a pin drop. To, I hate to use the same phrase, but it just fits. You could have heard that pin drop in that auditorium um, as I talked. And when I finished, I was a full hour. Mm -hmm. When I finished... I walked off and there was not one clap or applause. So I walked up the aisle and thinking I was a complete failure. And <laughs> it was almost like they had to catch their breath about, is it over? Is the show over? And is the, and is that face going to allow us to clap? It was like they were, they were almost afraid to do it. And we soon found out that uh, they were all, like you say, mesmerized by the uh, my description of who he was and my relationship to him. Well, you did great. I mean, I was at the Chicago Ghost Conference, too. I had a booth there. I was one of the tables. And you had the only talk that I left my table for to go listen to. Otherwise, when you got a table, you can't go listen to it all. But I actually just walked away and listened to yours. Well, thank you very much, because there were some very interesting people there and uh, some people famous in the paranormal world. Yeah, actually, Ursula has a, a really nice little uh, turnout when she does those. So uh, anything else you wanted to hit on here, Jeff? No, I just um, I wanted to let everyone know that uh, Mike Nichols, the executive producer for Pilgrim Studios and uh, History Channel, he's, uh, he's the one that produced Dirty Jobs uh, oh. with Mike Rowe. He yeah, produced Ghost. A, he per Go ahead. I was going to say, that's a great show. <laughs> one of my favorites. He produces Ghost Hunters, which is the paranormal show of all time. Mm -hmm. And now he's doing uh, another show that I'm enjoying heck out of uh, Wicked Tuna. The guy's out fishing off uh, off uh, Nantucket for the big the big tuna. Oh, okay. And uh, he was uh, telling me stories about uh, these fishermen out there. But Mike has agreed to go on my show, The Mudge Report, on Thursday, this Thursday, to give us the inside baseball about uh, producing television shows and uh, ghost hunters. And uh, I tell you what, I was uh, hoping some of your listeners might uh, tune in. Yeah, why don't you tell them where that's at? I actually listened to myself this week. It's the first I've heard it. What's well, a new show anyway? But you did. You, it was a really good show. But why don't you give out the address or you know how people can find your show? Yeah, it's the Mudge Report, and it's at BlogTalkRadio.com. Uh, we have a Facebook page for it too, as well, and uh, it's on Thursday, Thursday nights at nine central. And uh, like I say, this this week we're uh, just privileged to have such such a powerful uh, man in Hollywood and an artist uh, willing to. Uh, step up and take uh, your questions even about uh, how Hollywood works and uh, what it takes for a book or an idea to pass his desk for him to sign a check and then direct crews and trailers out to some location across the country 
to bring him back the film that he thinks he can sell to the advertisers on TV. It's a fascinating process. That's pretty cool. You're, you're lucky to get him. It, it, very lucky. And um, trust me, I'm, I'm going to take uh, every bit of advantage I can. Oh, definitely. Oh, yeah. Before we uh, forget, too, uh, is there a timetable on your History Channel uh, documentary they just did? You know, when's that going to air? Do you know yet? You know, the, I'm thinking three months, John. They were uh, We were uh, originally um, scheduled to be the third show on their new series. It was going to be called The Fear Files. They canned that title. They don't like it. They're working on a new title for the series now. We were supposed to go on behind the Salem Witch Trial show and then the Ghost of Gettysburg, like I mentioned, show. But they liked the Murder Castle show so much that that were their premiere show for the series. So I would imagine, if I had to guess, it, will, it would be the first week or so in October. That's cool. Well, I mean, the, the Murder Castle, H.H. Holmes, fascinates everybody. But another thing, actually, your book is actually one of the best written amazing books out there and i'm not just saying that because we're friends it really is so the combination of that and your subject matter jeff i mean this is going to be huge there's no doubt about it well john that's uh, quite a compliment i really appreciate it um i had when i started john it was a uh, something to put down on paper for family and friends and uh, i had no idea i couldn't imagine that it would go this far and when i get when i get reviews in you know every day now from people that uh say that they really enjoyed reading the book, not only as far as, you know, learning about Holmes and the terrible thing that he was. I like to call him thing now, John, well, not a human being. Well, not that's a human pretty being. well what he was, too. <laughs> yeah, a thing. Um, but they, they tell me that the book is starting to change the way they think about life, which, man, it takes my breath away when I hear those um, those comments. So it's uh, it's turned into something I couldn't have imagined, John, and uh, it's because of people like you and our friendships that uh, I've been given the chance to uh, to tell the story. Because let's face it, I'm self-published. I decided to go that way even though I had offers from publishing companies because they're, the big publishing companies aren't treating authors fairly anymore. Right. And, uh, and uh, you know what? I didn't want to put the work in to see some fellow that I never met uh, reap any benefit there ever would be from it. And uh, Kelly, my uh, manager, and I, we decided, you know, let's let's give it a shot and, and do our best. Uh, and you know what? Like I say, it's people like you with your radio show, John, that are giving us our chance to uh, not be invisible anymore as we were when we started. Well, I've been giving you a hand. I don't even know how long we've known each other now, but since I met you, you weren't quite as well known. And uh, I've seen you change since that time. I mean, you've just been getting more and more popular, too. It's It's going along pretty darn quick. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we're going to keep trying as hard as we can. And I think, you know, I think next year when Warner Brothers comes out with the movie uh, about H.H. Holmes starring Leonardo DiCaprio, I think we're going to get our chance to uh, showcase our book right alongside them and maybe get our chance, John. That'd be good. And you also have this book's available in the ebook version, too, right, Jeff, for the people that don't have a lot of money or they want an instant read. You know, I did, and you're exactly right. I did that because I knew the economy was tough, and a lot of people couldn't afford the book that we sell at uh, at our webpage, which uh, you can get just by googling bloodstains. Where uh, our sales are doing so well that we're top of the top of the first page now. Just just bloodstains, one word. But if you can't afford that fifteen dollars for a print book, you can go to Amazon, uh, run run bloodstains again through Amazon search, and uh, we're selling the book for a price of a cup of coffee, $2.99. And, uh, 
give it a shot. I think uh, I don't think you'll be disappointed. And also remember, every Thursday night now on the Mudge Report, anyone who buys the ebook and submits a review to Amazon for us, uh, we have a uh, a contest, and the uh, best review of the week uh, gets a free signed copy now of Bloodstains. Yeah, that's a good thing, too. I'm glad you brought that up because I was actually in my notes here to remember to say that before we were done. Okay, well, Jeff, it's been great, and uh, I'll talk to you again. Well, I'll probably talk to you later tonight myself, but we'll have you on the air again uh, sometime soon right down the line. You know, John, uh, thank you very much. And remember, buddy, you're on the A-team, so uh, you're up in that command control center watching uh, watching what happens when uh, we're down below. I actually like that better because I like, I do it more of the scientific view. I'm not in there for the glory. I want to go in there for the research and setting my cameras up and sitting there and watching what they pick up and what they do is what I enjoy. That's, uh, that's what I'm counting on you to bring to the effort, John. Just, just what you just described. Well, that's great, Jeff. And, uh, I will talk to you again later. Have a great day or night, wherever you happen to be today. (laughs) Thanks, John. Bye. Bye. All right, that was Jeff Mudgett. We'll be right back. You're listening to Thresholds Radio. TheEdgeOnAir.com wants to invite you to be abducted. Tune in Friday night starting at 10 p.m. for Thresholds Radio. Host John Stevenson is your guide through the realm of the paranormal with an hour-long radio show sure to give you the heebie-jeebies. Check out UFO-Info.com to learn more. It's Thresholds Radio every Friday night at 10 p.m. on TheEdgeOnAir.com. All right, on the line right now, we have Butch Witkowski, and we're going to be talking about some pretty intense stuff with him, alien abductions, human mutilations, and more. Well, I want to welcome you to the show, Butch, and uh, our listeners don't know this, but you and I have been talking off air for about an hour and a half already, so I know all about you, but why didn't you tell all them about yourself and uh, your research? Okay, John, I'm the, uh, my name is Butch Witkowski, I'm the director of U4COP, the UFO Research Center of Pennsylvania. Uh located in eastern Pennsylvania. Uh, We are an investigative research group that investigates UFOs, cryptozoology, paranormal, and abduction. Uh, We've been in existence now for, this is our fourth year. Uh, We have a website at uh, www.paufosearch.com, one word. And um, I guess tonight we're going to talk a little bit about the abduction phenomenon. Yeah, which is amazing. You and I talked about this once before, but unfortunately, our, our tape got destroyed at technical things, so we never got to air it. Well, uh, you know, a lot of people get a little confused with abduction. When you talk about abduction, you're thinking somebody just got kidnapped. And the term alien abduction or the alien abduction phenomenon is really described as subjectively real memories of being taken secretly or against one's will by apparently non-human entities and subjected to complex complex and psychological procedures. And worse. Uh, Yes. Uh, When I first uh, started, it was quite accidentally that I got involved in this where um, I was asked to speak at a conference on abduction. And although I knew about it, I really didn't uh, know a whole lot about it, uh, to be honest. So I, you know, set about doing some studies because I had two months to get ready. And... um, in the midst of the uh, research, it just kind of hit me like, well, so how many people could be missing? And um, 
I tried to locate that. Unfortunately, there is no groups or databases for that type of abduction scenario. So I went on NCIC, which is the National Crime Information Center, and uh, I saw that in 2008, um, 7, 778,000 missing persons reports were filed. That's amazing. And approximately 95% were found. 75% of those are runaways under the age of 18. You know, like, I can't have dad's car, so I'm going to run away. Uh, another 20% came out to be spousal abuse, murders, elderly walkaways, ransom demands, etc. But what struck me was that 5% are never found, and that number came out to be 38,908. So I went back a little further, and since 1991, the missing persons reports totaled 13,861,000. Again, using that same math, uh, 5%, uh, 693,000 are never found, no traces ever located. And uh, so in a 17-year period, that's 40,795 people a year that are missing. Completely Never. unaccounted for, too. Are they just gone? Totally right? unaccounted for. No bodies found, nothing. I mean, they're just gone. And that's men, women, and children. Now, with abduction, alien abduction, a lot of the mental health and scientists explain it as, you know, deception, proneness to fantasy, false memory syndrome, personality disorders, sleep phenomenon, environmental factors. But, you know, those are pretty high numbers. And then, you know, the, and the abduction scenario, uh, and no matter where you hear it or where you read it, it's always the same. There's a capture, there's an examination, there's a conference with the uh, takers, there's a tour of the craft, there's loss of time, then there's the return. Some people suffer from uh, theophany, which is, you know, they have a oneness with God or the universe or the world. Exactly. And then there's the aftermath that they put up with for the rest of their lives. And uh, again, uh, no matter which report you're reading, going way back or something that's just recent, you know, the areas of alien interest in the human is the same also. They're interested in the cranium, the nervous system functions, skin samples, the reproductive systems, both male and female, cardiovascular systems, respiratory systems, the lymphatic system, and the abdominal lower region only. So, you know, they're all the same. They don't change. They don't change. And you've had a lot of really notable cases since 1957. Um, the Antonio Boas case in Brazil, uh, the Betty and Barney Hill case in 61, the Shermer case in uh, Allagash in 67, Pascagoula case in 73, Travis Waltman in 75, uh, uh, Robert Taylor in 79, Whitey uh, Stribner in the 70s and 80s. So it's, it's a phenomenon that is being looked at more now than ever, I believe. Well, the details uh, are usually pretty much the same, too. Out of all these cases, no matter who or where they are, they usually pretty much come out the same. That's correct. I mean, they just, no matter where. Uh, the only thing is, with, like I said, with the abduction, there's no databases, and we can only go on stuff that's really from this country. Groups overseas are sparse. Uh, I deal with a few, and um, they every now and then come up with a case. But... Um, you know, the, the person's either found or, or you know, they, there was an accident or something like that. But in most cases, you know, there's no way in knowing how many people are missing around the world because there are no databases. And I'm sure in the Middle East where, you know, people are killed daily by the hundreds and, and the African countries, who knows how many people are missing? But we can only really find anything database-wise uh, from the, uh, you know, the NCIC report. And the NCIC report is done by every police department in the country every year. It is uh, set forth uh, paperwork uh, where you would put down anything from what it is you're reporting the crimes in your, in your area. 
uh, to the FBI for their reports. And that's, you know, that's how they uh, publish in the newspaper that, you know, murders are up, rapes are down, burglaries up, right. uh, that kind of stuff. But you never and hear this. I mean, when's the last time you heard on the news that, you know, X amount of people are missing? <laughs> that's never brought up, ever. And for good reason, I'm sure, because how can anybody explain that? So once I got involved in that, then I really started looking at the abduction phenomenon, uh, uh, not only with the human element, but with cattle. In the middle 50s, you know, the stories about finding corpses of strangely mutilated cattle began to, began to surface in the rural southwestern United States, in the four corner states, uh, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, and, and, and Arizona. And um, first, the authorities blamed the pharmaceutical companies who were alleged to be using the excised organs for research, and then the cults using the organs in rituals. And the strange thing about that was, which is almost the same as the abduction scene, is there's no physical traces, there's no footprints, there's no crushed grass, no tire prints, no imprints in the snow, no indications of man nor predator near the carcasses. And um, the wounds on the uh, carcasses are one to one and a half inch holes through which internal organs are sucked out. The wounds are cauterized by extreme heat. They're extremely precision cut and usually missing from the, all the carcasses, so the eyes, tongues, lip, jaw, sexual organs, lower intestines, and udders. And uh, the cattle mutilations are not predator. I mean, if you look at a predator, uh, an animal killed by a predator... Well, they say, rip things apart. Yeah, uh, a pack of wolves descends on a, on a calf or, or, or a slow-moving cow. I mean, they just shred it. I mean, they take the... You know, they just rip things off. There's, there's nothing precision about anything. There are no holes. I mean, they just gut the animal. Yeah, very few animals walk around with laser cutting tools. Right. Well, and then uh, I, uh, as I got into it a little bit, then I found that sheep mutilations in the United Kingdom, in, in, in England, and now basically the same exact thing that are done to the cattle here are done to sheep out there. Now, horses have been done here also. But, you know, you look at these pictures of the sheep and, you know, they got the same holes, the same markings, the same organs are missing. And, um, you know, the reports continue. I mean, in, uh, through 2011, we've had reports in Colorado, New Mexico, Texas, Montana, California, Oklahoma, Arizona, England, South America. So they continue. And then, you know, that kind of led me into human mutilation, which was really hard to believe. And I thought, well, it's just, an, you know, some kind of Internet prank or something like that. And um, so I started looking at that. And it really starts in the early 60s where you get stories coming to the forefront of human corpses being found with the same types of wounds they find on cattle. And that was immediately dismissed, dismissed as being in bad taste by ufologists. Absolutely. Which is kind of irrelevant. If, if something's happening, it's happening. Yeah, and it was just not to be talked about. And um, I've been told to stop, and of course I didn't stop, but uh, some of the cases to date were, you know, that we found only one uh, that we can, or actually two, that we can say we have enough evidence to say that that case actually took place. But there was one of a Sergeant J.P. Lovett, U.S. Air Force in 56, who went downrange uh, in White Sands, uh, New Mexico, with a uh, commanding officer to pick up some material left from a recent shot of a, of a missile the colonel that's with him hears him screaming and gets over a sand dune just in time to see him with something lashed around his leg being pulled up into some sort of a craft. And then a few days later, they find his body not far from where he was taken, uh, laying there, uh, and he's been pretty much done in just like a cattle mutilation. There was a case in Bliss, Idaho, uh, cases in New Zealand, 
and then there's a couple cases which we just really can't get a lot of information on. Uh, there was a special ops uh, military firefight during Vietnam where a group of um, special operations soldiers come across some aliens loading body parts into cases, plastic cases. Wow. Uh, the firefight starts, and uh, hooray for our side, we win pretty much all the information that comes out. And then there's a B-52 crash in Vietnam uh, where the uh, plane looks like it has been set down in the jungle, not a crash. And when uh, the, the uh, operations team, along with a Navy medic who presents the story and photographer, gets there, uh, they find the guys still strapped in their seats, and they're pretty much butchered the same way. The group that goes out there uh, orders them to burn the plane, destroy it. We cannot find any evidence of a B-52 crash in Vietnam uh, to date. And a plane like that coming down in the woods is going to make huge amount of damage. I mean, the cases just came to light a couple of years ago, and, you know, we're still looking for information, but the information is slim to none. But the two cases that uh, really stand out, especially the biggest one, is uh, the Guadaparanga Dam case in Brazil in 1988. Uh, the Guadaparanga Dam is located in Sao, right outside of Sao Paulo, Brazil, and... Um, a couple guys are out fishing on the lake, and they see what looks to be a body on one of the little islands. And it's a man-made lake. So uh, they go out, and uh, instead of going to check the body, they go get the police, and the police come out, and they bring forensic people with them. So um, you know, they, they look at the body, and death due to massive trauma is what the autopsy report says, which we have a copy of. Uh, there's no signs of rigor mortis or liver mortis. Time of death was placed at 40 to 72 hours before discovery. There's no bloating or noticeable amount of blood at the scene, which is remarkable on no bloating because the temperature in that part of the country, uh, that part of the world, at that time of the year, it would have been in the high 90s with very high humidity. Well, then you would have ballooned in no time. Anything dies, it's going to happen like that. Oh, absolutely. Now, the decedent, the gentleman, is found with a... Uh, the following were surgically removed, his eyes, left ear, inner ear, lower jaw, inner throat, and tongue. There are one inch to one and a half inch holes in the following areas where muscle, tissue, and glands are removed, the shoulder, chest, navel, and thigh. Testicles were removed, prostrate gland was removed via the urethral tube. Uh, the intestines were removed via a hole in the navel, the anus was cored out to the colon, the body presented no signs of bloating, which is remarkable. And there was no body odor whatsoever. Uh -oh. the, uh, the autopsy report, uh, when it was translated in the autopsy report seven or eight times, I believe it was seven, uh, there's the term vital reaction. And the definition of vital reaction, the actual legal definition of vital reaction, indicates a response of living body tissues to injury. By definition, it can only occur during life and is therefore an index of anti-mortem injury. This is of considerable importance in forensic medicine in A, attempting to establish that an injury was inflicted before death, and B, possibility of estimating the time of infliction before death. If you would take a dead body and stab it with a knife, all you're going to get is a hole, period. There's not going to be any discoloration, any marking, anything like that. Uh, if you stab a living individual with that knife, He's pulling, he's moving, he's tearing, he's trying to get away. So he's causing all kind of injuries around the wound itself, okay? And um, what it actually means is the guy was alive when the procedure was inflicted upon him. Wow. Um, 
one of the things they find during the autopsy is um, when they remove the skull cap is that the trauma of vital reaction was so great that he had multiple hematomas in the brain of small blood vessels. That's um, from extreme pain, isn't it? Correct. If, uh, uh, like, say, a person would be crushed to death uh, slowly, um, like they were run over by something, uh, and there was no way they could get away, the, the absolute terror and the pain would just start popping blood vessels in the brain, and this guy's uh, brain was covered with them. Yeah, that's terrifying. The, um, we are investigating another case we just got from England, and we just started that investigation just a couple of days ago. So I don't know where that's going to go yet, but um, from the person that's the researcher in England that sent it to us, um, he's pretty sure that uh, we're probably looking at the same type of abduction, and although they haven't found the body yet, uh, that we had with the Todd Cease case in Pennsylvania. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Todd Cease case, um, that happened up in Northumberland County in August of 2002 on Montour Ridge. Um, it started with a missing persons report. report was made to the Point Township Police Department on August 4, 2002. The missing individual's name was Todd Cease, white male, 39 years old. On that date, Mr. Cease advised his wife he was going to spot some preseason deer up on Montour Ridge. He takes his four-wheeler and he leaves. States that he'll be home by noon at two o'clock. The rifle reports him missing because he's not an individual that would not be there on time. Very uh, out of sorts for uh, him. Uh, search is mounted by local police, state police, fire company. Mr. Cease's ATV is found undamaged along with his boot, which was found in a tree. No Mr. Cease. Searching cadaver dogs find nothing. The divers search a, a pond on the Cease property. They find nothing. Local fishermen see an object over the power lines and see something being pulled into it. A local farmer says he sees the same thing. The search resumes and searchers find the uh, search is stopped for the day. The following day it resumes and the searchers find the body of Todd, Todd Cease in a thicket of bushes 150 yards from his residence wearing only his underwear. He has a, uh, a burn mark on his left temporal lobe and three feet away from him is lying a dead snake, rattlesnake. Uh, he has no snake bites on him. The, the snake has no visible signs of any uh, trauma. Uh, he was not bitten by the snake. He is emaciated. Uh, he is pale. The only damage, like I said, was a temporal lobe, a burnt, like a burn mark, black uh, burn mark. Mm -hmm. The coroner removes the body to the Indian Town, Fort on Indian Town Gap, um, which to do the post, uh, I trained at Indian Town Gap. Uh, there's no facilities there to do an autopsy. The body receives a second post at Allentown Hospital. There's no ruling on the cause of death. Uh, foul play and trauma are automatically ruled out, so they wait toxicology. The uh, ATV was full of gas. The key was in the ignition. It was on. Uh, it was actually off, but the key was on. There was uh, no footprints in the ground around it, no marks of animals or any distress or a fight or anything like that. Uh, the boot was found up in a tree about 25 or 30 feet. Uh, they never found the rest of his clothes or the other boot, and uh, that was a six-square-mile search of the Montour Ridge that produced nothing. Uh, the family was not allowed to view the body. Uh, the body was returned for burial six to eight weeks later. The cause of death uh, came out uh, as a cocaine overdose. A cocaine overdose? Uh, yeah, Mr. Cease had no record of any uh, cocaine overdose, speaking with some of his friends and, and school chums. Uh, there was never, never any use of drugs. Uh, matter of fact, he, he was uh, 
uh, prone to be a guy that walked around from morning till night with a can of Mountain Dew soda in his hand. Hmm. So a lot of the issues with that incident uh, were where are the missing clothes? Why was the body not seen during a search of six square miles, including the property, where all these people were walking around, including cadaver dogs and search dogs? And the bodies found 25 yards from the pond, which was already searched by divers. How'd the boot get up in the tree? Why was the family not allowed to view the body? Why was the body taken to a military uh, facility for a post? And why was there a second post? So, you know, the issues continued. Where are the fishermen and the farmer statements? Can't find those. Uh, there was no history of drug use. Why was the body emaciated and not bloated due to the heat that time of the year? Why did the body show no signs of post-mortem lividomy or rigor mortis or liver mortis? Why, after all these years, is this still an open case with the police? We've tried to get their report, and we were told if we kept bothering them, we'd be charged with harassment, uh, and it is an open case. Now, in the state of Pennsylvania, as I'm sure in all cases in other states, when a case is open, the only reason a case is kept open because it's listed as a murder. They don't have an individual or individuals to go after. But there's no questions being asked about this, except for possibly you. Otherwise, everyone's just accepting it. Well, everybody's pretty much accepting it, but uh, there are other investigators that are looking at the case, as well as myself. Uh, There's actually even an investigator from Hawaii that was involved. But, um, you know, as long as it's an open case, you can't get anything. You're not going to get the police report. You're not going to get the autopsy reports. You're not going to get anything, as long as it's an open case. Now, if it was a closed case, that would be a different story. Just file Freedom of Information Act and you get the information. But if it's an open case, it will stay open forever. Oh, so that's the reason they got an open case, so you can't find anything about it. Mm, pretty much. You know, the question on abduction, basically, is what is it? You know, are we dealing with us extraterrestrial beings, interdimensional beings, time travelers, or all of the above? You know, people are being affected in a very real, real way in this, and, you know, there's death involved, and it's and it's happening to many, many people. So, and the, and these numbers you have are just representing America, too, like you were saying before. So who knows how much is going on around the world? Yep, that's the 50 states. That's, uh, that's it. That's, uh, that's, nothing out of, that's nothing from Canada or any other, other country. I mean, that's just the United States. Well, how often are they finding these kind of things, Butch? You know, as far as finding the bodies, you know, that have been mutilated? Uh, well, like I said, there's, you know, there's a couple cases. The, the most recent case would be um, Egypt. And uh, that takes place in 2005 in Beni Mazar, which is on the outskirts of the of the main one of the main cities. Uh-huh. But anyway, um, three families are pretty much butchered in the same way that our boy in in Brazil was. Wow! They uh, arrest a guy uh, for the murders. I mean, every man, woman, child, uh, pig, dog, whatever was in the places were basically butchered the same way as cattle. Uh, they arrest a retarded man who uh, really just has a problem walking, uh, got the IQ of maybe a seven or eight year old, and he's charged with the murders. Uh, he, he lives in a town uh, 15 miles away. Um, they couldn't produce how he got to this Benny Mazar area. Uh, it's right outside of Cairo. I knew I'd come up with it sooner or later. <laughs> okay. And uh, um, he uh, is charged with the murders of the three families. Uh, you gotta remember now, we're talking about somebody with a, with a mind of a seven year old. So we don't know how they came up with with his modus operandi of killing three families, and uh, where did he get the instruments to do this kind of uh, cutting and tearing, and what did he do with all the organs that were taken? So he's brought to trial, and uh, a, a, a young lady lawyer uh, takes the case for him, and uh, you know they present the case, and after a couple of years, he's acquitted. 
to this day, he is not allowed to leave his house without being under a police watch or a policeman, uh, even to go to the mosque or to uh, go shopping with his family. He's under constant police surveillance. Oh, that's weird. And then uh, one of the most recent reports we got, which it just seems to be at a standstill right now, and um, I'm assuming there's some issues. We got a report, uh, or we had two re researchers uh, send us an email and uh, from England, and they said they had some found some alleged documentation of mummified remains of persons found in trees in the 16th through the 19th centuries with strange holes in their bodies. And I sent back to them, I said, well, what exactly do you mean and how did you find this? And they said, well, they were working on a research paper having to do with archaeology and they stumbled across some writings or papers or books describing missing people found hanging in trees mummified, but only a few days after they were reported missing. And they bared strange holes in their body and they had some missing body parts. I, I questioned them again and I said, well, how, what, I mean, where did you find the information? They said, well, they were looking through old records and England was one of those countries where they kept records on everything mm -hmm. and this was a, a village uh, and they were going back to records trying to locate some information on some locations that they were looking for and they came upon uh, a number of these cases then they really started looking and then they found more and then they were when they asked to photograph or copy that information they were told no they couldn't do that because they don't allow the photographs and they're surely not going to allow these old books to be put into a copy machine so last thing we heard from them was they were going to try a different approach and try to get back to uh, the one place especially where the stuff from the 16th century see if they could get some kind of uh, relief uh, with you know maybe just let us write down the information on our own paperwork and so I don't know where they got with that, but we haven't heard from them for a few, maybe six months. So I had sent an email off not too long ago, maybe three months ago, and I hadn't had any reply. So maybe they shut down, or maybe it was just, you know, a hoax to begin with. Or oh, they were they were shut down. <laughs> they, they were eliminated, which ha happens in this kind of thing sometimes, too. I'm pretty sure that pretty true because I had uh, a woman from uh, the United States who most of her family came from England and, and there's some royalty involvement there. That she proved. I mean, you know, uh, I got to a site where uh, it gave the uh, listing of royalty and relatives of royalty and stuff like that and, there, and her father's name was there. So I took her at her word and she was relating uh, sort of the same thing. She didn't mention the holes or the uh, mutilation. But she mentioned that uh, you know bodies were being found on roofs, uh, up in trees that were way too high to climb. And trees aren't very high in England. You know they don't grow very tall, mm -hmm. and um, <laughs> they're pretty sparse. But it found in mountainous areas, uh, came to the top floating in bogs, and all in that same area of, uh, or up time in 16th, 17th, 18th century. And she was documenting all that stuff. Uh, now, she had taken ill about a year ago, and I haven't tried to contact her since, but I, I should just to see how she's doing. It wasn't very serious, but it was a, one of those debilitating things like colitis or something. Mm -hmm. So um, so maybe there was something to the story, but you know, since I don't live in England, it's a little hard for me to get information. But this new case that we were just presented with, um, uh, I just got it a couple days ago, like I said, so I just started really working on it. And... Um, and the guy says he'll give me all the information and help me get all the information I need. 
So we'll see how that works out. These are amazing. But, so, I mean, these are basically just like the cattle mutilations we've heard about growing up for the longest time, but just on people then. Sure. Exactly. I mean, I mean, they're identical. When you look at when you look at the pictures of the cadaver from Brazil, and if you put a picture of a, of a, a, a butchered cow aside of it, I mean, uh, the, 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 it's identical. The holes are the same. They're the same size. They're cut with the same precision. You know, cows have multiple stomachs. Mm-hmm. And when you remove the udders of a cow, and I asked a veterinarian about this, he said to remove the udders of a cow with a scalpel and knowing what you're doing, to not cut into one of those stomachs would be pretty much impossible. I have pictures of cows where the udders taken out where the stomachs are exposed. They're not even scratched. My gosh. So, you know, <laughs> it's, it's kind of amazing. Um, in this day and age for people to say that, oh, we have that type of equipment. I just went through an operation uh, and I got a couple holes in me. And trust me, they are not perfectly round. Hmm. Uh, They're not perfectly smooth. Uh, They're pretty much jagged. Got the job done, but nothing like this. I mean, this stuff is being done with precision instruments that I don't even know if we even have. The mutilations nowadays, I remember hearing about this, uh, my gosh, what was it like? 70s, early 80s, you used to hear about it a lot, but you don't hear about it much. But it's still going on just as much, isn't it? Uh, yeah. It's just, yeah, it's, what's it, just a big hush-hush thing then? It's just no one's allowed to speak about it? Well, yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, uh, I'm, I mean I've mean, i been fortunate that uh, there are a lot of people out there have read the reports and have did a little research on their own, and they, they realize that this stuff has gone on. And, uh, you know... Although I've been asked to uh, stop it, and I even received a call one time to um, stop mentioning it and stop talking about it. And then when I called the number back from caller ID, the number was disconnected. That happened in a matter of three minutes. That's pretty hard to do, not unless your phone company's got something going for you. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you're on something like that, too, something, an issue like this, and whoever they are, they want you to stop. They let you know. they got all their little secret ways, but it's a matter of who they are. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, I, I just think that um, one of the things is, you know, if you're out, whether it's ufology or this or, or abductions or, or cryptozoology, uh, no matter what genre you're looking at or phenomenon, um, you know, if you're out there, you're out there for a search for the truth. And if they would just say that to everybody and everybody would shut up, you know, I mean, you'd never even know there were UFOs anywhere. Exactly. You're actually involved in all those fields, too, by the way, aren't you? Yes. Okay. Yes. I don't think I said that in the beginning. I mean, you're not just into this abduction. You're into everything. Yeah. Uh, we, we researched uh, UFO sightings, uh, crashes. Um, our website, uh, which I'll give you again, is uh, paufosearch.com. Uh, if you look on the front page, there are uh, some cases from Pennsylvania and around uh, that we have investigated. There's one case on there from the Harrisburg flap uh, that was done by another researcher. But they pretty much tell it the way it is and what we found. There's a couple in there that, you know, they say it was a flap, and we say it never took place. And we offered the proof, and uh, the proof is there. And I always say if anybody thinks that, you know, they have more information that would change our ending or our end of our research on a certain case, let me know. I'll post it. To, to date, I haven't had anything like that happen. I mean, we, we're pretty thorough with our research. Uh, we have two mobile units. We have one uh, fully – well, we have two fully equipped, and they have everything from uh, – satellite communications to uh, built-in laptops and high IF cameras and regular cameras and you name it, we got it. Uh, trucks are both loaded. Um, 
we have one here in, in the east end of the state, and we have one out in the western part of the state. Uh, the one out in the western part of the state is a four-wheel drive uh, only because of the area about out there uh, where it's at, and uh, the one here is a is a is a, a Ford panel, a new Ford panel. I think we're the only ones in the country that have anything like that. We have pretty much everything on there we need. We are going to put in some uh, um, television equipment into the into the big van, um, only because of some stuff. We uh, don't only investigate things in Pennsylvania. I mean, we've uh, we're investigating the Brown Mountain Lights in North Carolina. Um, I've helped investigate cases in pretty much every state in the union so far. Uh, we've helped a lot of other groups research stuff, uh, smaller groups that needed help or didn't have the database or the equipment. Uh, we've helped them out. Uh, we've uh, helped some researchers in Poland. Uh, we've helped some researchers in Germany. We've helped some researchers in England. We've helped some researchers in Spain. And just really, you know, searching for things that they were trying to find here in the United States or with a case they may have in their country that they think is similar to a case that we may have had here, and I'll, I'll do that research for them. We'll help anybody out. I mean, I haven't turned anybody down ever, and I don't think I ever will because, you know, we get people that talk about cases that happened back in the 50s. Now, databases back in the 50s on UFOs were zero, zilch. There was none. All right. But, you know, if you do enough searching in old newspapers and stuff like that, you can come up with some stuff. Now, Pennsylvania, since 1947, we can document uh, about 2,200, uh, 2,300 cases of UFO sightings. I don't have the ratio on which would be hoaxes because mm -hmm. been, you know, the reports come from so many different locations. But we don't have a lot of hoax reports come to us. I think in the, in the four years, almost four years now that we've been up and running, I think I've had like six uh, and they were quite obvious. And the one was a known hoaxer that I knew from a previous group. Uh, so I, I think we're getting a lot of good information. We'll answer anybody's questions. I mean, whether they want to uh, know how to use a piece of equipment or how to do an investigation or what they should do during a report. Also on our website, we I put up, uh, started putting up a couple months ago, uh, investigative techniques on, you know, how to use IF, uh, IF uh, IF cameras, how to use uh, investigative techniques and questioning, how to control, take and control evidence, um, how to seal it, how to make sure that it stays proper. Uh, this month I'll be doing, or last month we did uh, on how to use um, uh, EMF detectors and uh, the different types and, and how you would use them with UFOs. Types of equipment to carry, uh, things that they should not do during a paranormal investigation, especially people with, uh, you know, cameras with the camera straps hanging down. <laughs> exactly. Uh, they have caused so many false positives in UFO in, in paranormal pictures that it's crazy, or or they or they're smoking a cigarette. I was just going to uh, say that they're cigarette smoking. You're taking a picture, and the guy behind you's uh, smoking. Yeah, and and all of a sudden, you know, there's this big case about plasma. I, you know, we, we've listed different books people should read on UFOs. We've listed uh, books on uh, uh, different people uh, books people should read on paranormal or cryptozoology. We always encourage people to go to conferences. You know, there's conferences held all over the country, not so much in the last two years because of the economy, but that'll change again. It'll get back to where it was. But we encourage them to go to the conferences. Uh, we speak a lot. We go out and speak a lot. We get interviewed a lot on uh, radio shows, uh, been on coast to coast a few times. Uh, we do one or two radio shows a, a month. And it's just, uh, it's good to get the information out to the people because, you know, I, I'm not here to train researchers, really. Um, I'm looking for the truth, and I want to find out what's going on and, and uh, you know, take these cases and just look into them and see if they're credible. Uh, and if they're credible, you know, 
the investigation goes well and we come up with the right answers, we'll post it. And out of all these cases you have, because you cover the whole gamut here, what are some like your most memorable cases, you know, that have really stuck in your head, whether they're UFO, abduction, or ghost, whatever? I think the one that sticks in my head the most is the Carbondale, Pennsylvania case. That, that to me, was really one of the very first cases that we took on. It was a uh, the case um, where uh, an object lands in a silt pond in Carbondale, Pennsylvania, and it's witnessed by uh, a group of teenagers standing on the corner on a Saturday night. And uh, like I mentioned to you before, you know, in that part of the country, Carbondale is a very beautiful little town. Mm -hmm. But it's in that distressed coal area, you know, and uh, not a whole lot to do on a Saturday night. And uh, they saw this thing uh, come out of the east to west in the early morning sky, and it's kind of passing over Russell Park, and they're standing on a corner about a block away, and they watch this bright, hot-looking object go behind uh, the park and uh, into a, um, an abandoned coal property and um, winds up in a silt pond on the property. Uh, they run over and they say that they see a light coming from underneath the water that's glowing and there's a sizzling sound. Uh, this all takes place November 9, 1974. Uh, the witnesses are aged uh, 14 to 19, uh, four guys and a girl, and uh, they call the police and the police sh uh, don't show up right away and they call them again and they finally show up after three hours. Of course, the whole scenario after we got the original investigator's report was just phenomenal because it was just like not one thing in there in that report, which was pretty much the report. I mean, everybody believed that report. The gentleman was a skeptic. People said military were there and took something out of the pond while nobody was there. You know, we get the report. We go there. We've been there a number of times. Uh, we've done everything we could up there, taking samples, measurements, photographs, and uh, it boils down to myself talking to the originator of the report, and uh, he says he didn't realize that anybody was even interested in that anymore because it was a it was a hoax. And I told the gentleman, I said, well, I can tell you this. I can't prove what went into the silt pond that night. That's impossible. I said, but just looking at what was taken out of the silt pond and saying that that's what went into the silt pond, I said, I can probably, without a doubt, prove forensically that that lantern was not what went into that pond. And what they pulled out of the pond was a old railroad lantern that they said was what went into the pond. It, it just wasn't true. I, I mean, you know, we bought some of the lanterns, the original lanterns, the same type, Got a hold of one of the batteries, uh, same type of battery that was in it. Checked with the manufacturer, the lantern specifications. I, I mean, we went through everything. Measurements, uh, time of day. We have pictures of a light glowing under the pond. And we tested with our own lanterns of the same type and battery configuration. And um, although I've heard some researchers say that they put that same lantern under the water for 35 and 40 hours and it stayed lit. <laughs> okay. Well... Uh, the only problem with that story is that uh, when they pulled this lantern out and opened it up, it was found to the battery was split open. Uh, the internal chemicals inside the battery were pouring out uh, into the case. The case was all corroded. The uh, contact points were all corroded. And according to the battery manu manufacturer, that thing wouldn't have lit no matter what you did, even if you held a match to it. <laughs> uh, a picture of the light under the U on the of the uh, alleged UFO lantern slash lantern on the uh, which we have a picture of in the uh, on the website shows this bright glowing light under the water and uh, I held an LED light which we waited at the bottom so the light would shine up and we threw that in 
course, on the string so I could retrieve it. They're a little expensive. And although the light was waterproof, uh, it did not show anything as bright as this light. Now, a lantern, uh, this railroad lantern, has one little 9-volt light in it, you know, just like the old flashlights had. They could buy for 60 cents. There's no way it caused that bright light because this LED light has 25 LEDs and it didn't show anything near as bright as the picture showed. And this just fell out of the sky was the story too, right? Correct. It just fell out of the sky. Then they said it was moving around uh, in the pond. Uh, a policeman actually fired at it when it came after him. It started to come toward him and he fired. There were just certain things that were so strange with the case after we got through and really after we got the information, we got a copy of the report. You know, the facts were just, they were taken from the original case file. And, um, you know, it was our opinion, having been involved in looking at the Carbondale UFO lantern incident, that the techniques of the investigation were faulty, in that scientific and common forensic te uh, techniques were not even followed. Analysis of the water sample was not revealed, nor the water-air temperature difference of 16 degrees was never questioned. The battery was not taken for testing by, uh, to a reputable lab. The photos were not taken uh, by the UF investigator on the scene or the police, but a private photographer who copyrighted the photos immediately. Family will not release those photos, even if they have them anymore. Who even knows that? The uh, lantern, the original lantern, was given to the police chief, who said he sold it at a yard sale for five bucks. Huh. The scene, uh, sight drawing, is totally out of proportion, uh, making the movement of the object absolutely minimal. Um, the movement of the lantern was said, they said was caused by underwater currents is not factual because there is no underwater current in a silt pond. The report is unclear as to the person or persons taken witnesses statements, you know, and, you know, another thing came up with why would a scuba diver from New York used as local divers who refused entry to the pond on the grounds of safety and possible radiation contamination. Uh, NORAD, why would NORAD and NASA be contacting the Carbondale Police Department? Who recorded the witnesses statements and where were those recordings done? what was discussed with Fells Planetarium and the Radiation Management Corporation, uh, and who had the conversations with these two outfits and why? Were the persons taking the radiation readings trained in the use of the radiation detection equipment? How did the researchers conclude that the pond was extremely polluted? Why are no photographs or police report included in the original report from this investigator? Uh, did police or UFO investigators or the press influence witness statements? Who knows? Was, was this a small item, too? I mean, did the kids think it was a lantern falling, or where did the lantern idea come from? No, they, they didn't say anything about a lantern. They, they, were, they were just blamed that they threw the lantern in. Oh, okay. Uh, they said what they saw was a glowing, hot-looking object fall from the sky into the pond. Okay. Now, they didn't, they didn't see it go into the pond. They saw it go behind a row of trees, which is behind a park, which they were on the other side of. When they got there, they saw the glowing light under the water and the, and the um, heard the sizzling sound. Oh, okay. So they didn't actually, like, see something fall into the sky. They just, the cover story is, is that the kids threw the lantern in the lake's what it is then. Correct. The kids said they saw something fall from the sky and fall into that area. And when they went around that area is when they saw it in the pond. Oh, okay. Um, you know, when was the scene secured? How... Uh, who recorded statements, it was, it was just so much missing, uh, you know, and, and contrary to that report, that the object in the pond was a lit railroad lantern, the lantern described in, in the report could not have possibly been the source of the light witnessed within the pond. So it's our opinion and other opinion of other investigators who have researched this, that there was no way that lantern was the cause of the light in the silt pond. So, you know, basically there's just so many things that came up with the thing that was so wrong 
you know, the lantern was reportedly to be thrown a distance of 20 to 30 feet from the shoreline by the children. Mm-hmm. And it, there's no way it could have landed handled down because the battery is at the bottom. So it would have landed light down. Uh, the lantern, because of its weight distribution, could have only landed with the bulb down. There's no way. And it would have uh, sunk in this reportedly quicksand-like bottom that they report the pond had. Covered battery, like I said, the battery case was cracked. There was internal seepage, corrosion. Uh, There's no way the battery was functional. It doesn't make sense as why in heaven's name, if they just thought it was a lantern, why would they even try to recover it for the most part? Exactly. Um, A lot of things that were wrong with the report were times, measurements, statements, forensics, witness statements, drawings, and a whole bunch of conclusions that meant nothing. The UF investigators do not show up at the scene of the event until November 11th, approximately 34 to 39 and a half hours after the fact. A lot of stuff can happen in that time. Exactly. Was there any, uh, did you get any weird readings or anything around the area or, you know, any, no? No, we, we tested, we got test. we took water tests and sample tests of the soil under the water. Then um, there was no splash over of water from alleged bolides or creators, uh, cre- or, or, or a crater noticed by the diver. You know, a bolide traveling at high speed impacting water and silt in 15 feet of water would have left a crater as big as a house. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the report contained a lot of hearsay, second, third part, second and third party information, very little direct examination. And a query that we did of NASA astrophysics data system shows no meteorite activity on November 9, 1974. No report submissions of the UFO investigator uh, from another group that was there uh, was ever located. On the first attempt to retrieve the object in the pond, it would have been physically impossible for a police officer to say, that he tried to reach it at a depth of 15 feet with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So basically we came up with, you know, it was our opinion that there were neither bolides nor a railroad lantern that uh, could have possibly caused the light in silt pump. The fact that the battery was inoperable, no bolides or meteor activity was found in the area, was a simple truth. Many of the things in that report that we received from the original investigator were flawed on many counts. So the fact that the report was defended over so many years as a factual finding is astounding. We're going to keep this case uh, shall remain open as an unknown, uh, and it'll remain open until such time as uh, a factual and scientific conclusion is brought forth, and yeah. that's just going to keep it. It says there's too many flaws in there. The key one is if it's a small area there and a lantern supposedly falls in the lake, why in heaven's name would they spend all the time and energy trying to even find it? Yeah, and if you see the lantern, which there's a picture on that rep- in that report of the lantern and the battery, and there's also a uh, photo- overhead photographs of the of the of the silt pond. I, I mean, there's also a picture there that was taken of the light showing from underneath the pond, underneath the water. Mm-hmm. You look at the bright light there, and you consider that you're looking at a muddy silt pond, and you look how bright that light is, and you look at that lantern, and there's no way that that lantern gave off that kind of light ever in its best day, brand new. Wow. So it, you know, it would be like a single bulb flashlight, an old single bulb flashlight with two double two uh, D batteries in it. Period. Only this would have a this would have a uh, six volt battery in. It. So there's actually no idea of the size of whatever this is. Then is there? It's just all hearsay. All we all we can find out is a lot of people said it was taken out on a flatbed truck that had U.S. Air Force stamped on the side of the door. Uh, that's that's normal protocol for taking a lantern out. Yep. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it had a small crane on it. Uh, you know, one of these portable cranes, you know, that's attached to the body. Right. And uh, it was taken out while there was nobody there. And um, it, it's just an amazing piece. It was it was really a lot of fun to work on because uh, 
you know, uh, the best way to go about doing an investigation, and I don't care if it's on a UFO or if it's cryptozoology or if it's a paranormal case, you need to follow it forensically. Uh, did this happen and can it happen? You know, um, did I see what I saw? Did uh, Okay, so this is what I saw and this is, you know, this is what it did. Now, one of the things, you know, with the ufology, uh, you know, the first thing you want to do is check news reports and, then, you know, check everything, newspapers, even in that area, that even if you don't live there. Research old cases to see if there's been sightings there before. Just the forensic way of going about it, trying to prove that what was reported to you could have taken place. Not that it did, just could have that taken place. Were the conditions, were, is the story uh, consistent, known reactions of of those types of phenomena you know when somebody tells me they see a bright right a bright white tiny ball go from one horizon to the other in a matter of a second or less and it's zigzagging across the sky well i know it's not hmm. you know TBA. exactly <laughs> and it's not a satellite a fast walker goes it goes i mean i've seen two and i mean they they cross the horizon in front of me with three other researchers following it, you know, with binoculars and photographs, and everybody's going like, that's unbelievable. Now, uh, a lot of people misconstrue meteors and bolides, you know, with UFOs, but you got to remember, UFOs don't show tails. Meteors don't make right-hand turns like a lot of the UFOs do. That's correct. Some will just stop dead and, and, and shoot straight up. So, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to see sick in my time. I started researching back in the late 80s when my Wi-Fi and Three other people saw what we could not believe above a mountain in Tucson, Arizona, uh, which was a uh, about a 300-yard long object, kind of rusty copper in color, just floating above the mountain and then just take off in a shot so fast you couldn't even see it go. Wow. And then when I uh, made some inquiries and tried to find out if anybody else saw it, and everybody went like, nah, you didn't see that. I thought, you know what? I know what I saw. And my wife's not, you know, she's. <laughs> if there's a big skeptic in my life, it's her. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, she's kind of seen enough now where she kind of believes what I tell her. Is that the one that got you interested in this subject then? Yep. After everybody told me, no, you didn't see what you saw, I thought, you know what, I know what I saw. So uh, that I, I kind of stayed with it for a while, and I, then I got away from it because I was getting, I was getting um, frustrated. I couldn't find the information I wanted. Uh, nobody was talking. I got tired of listening to the same people over and over again uh, talk about Roswell, uh, which was like the premier case. And then I'm thinking, you know, all these cases. And then for some reason, I was on the Internet uh, and was reading something, and it just bit me again, and I dug out all my information I had saved from the last time, and I've been at it ever since. So it's been 20, pretty close to 25 years now. That's cool. You know, we were talking off air about uh, those mountain lights. I forgot where you said they were. Do you want to touch on that? That sounded like an amazing story. Uh, yeah, right now we're investigating the Brown Mountain Lights down in Morganton, North Carolina. Uh, we were down, and like I said to you, I said the whole trip down, I'm driving down there thinking, oh, boy, what a waste of gas, money, rooms, food, you know, the whole nine yards. And uh, we got up there, and um, I was really fully not, not expecting to see anything. I thought, you know, it's just old hearsay or it's, you know, hallucinations or maybe it's just uh, just the way the mountain sits and the sun sets and all that kind of stuff. And uh, we set up all our gear. We got the cameras out, the infrared, you know, uh, recordings and gas detectors, uh, uh, EMF detectors. I mean, we had everything out set up and uh, a little took a little while because it was, uh, it was, you know, one of those humid nights. It was a hot day. It was very humid that night. 
and so there was just like this, um, like a mini fog setting in, but uh, it cooled off, and that kind of went away, and the lights came right up, and they showed as pronounced orbs and orbs in shape. They were uh, multicolored. They were very large from the standpoint, uh, or the standing point where we were, which is about maybe three, four miles away from the actual Brown Mountain. They were huge. Uh, they would just come out of nowhere. Uh, they would expand and contract. They would move up and down, side to side, uh, follow down to the edge of the bottom of the mountain and come back up and disappear. Uh, there were multicolors. They were white, yellow, blood uh, blood red, not like you'd see um, like a sunset red. This was uh, a brilliant blood red and blue. We watched them through uh, infrared, uh, which they were really pronounced through infrared. To the naked eye, they were pronounced through binoculars, but through the infrared, they were really, they had shape. Uh, they were not jagged. They were perfectly round. Some went higher than others. They went past the top of the mountain, then receded back down to the mountain. But when they disappeared, it was like they just, they vanished. They just dissipated, like gone. We found no gases in the area that would cause that with the gas detectors. We found no um, no uh, electromagnetic uh, or radiological readings at all. Pictures we got were very good. So it was it was kind of an amazing thing. And this is a common occurrence in an area you're saying, right? They're semi-common. People tend to see it. Yeah. it's uh, They've been going on since 1722. Hmm. Uh, the original story is that the lights are, there was a, an Indian-Indian war, Indians against Indians, and the indigenous people started this war with each other, and there were many braves killed on top of the mountain. That's where the battle took place. And um, weeks after, you know, people were seeing these lights and saying, well, that was, uh, that was the... Uh, uh, the wives and family members looking for their dead warriors, you know, walking around the mountain with torches because they couldn't go up in the daylight because it'd be, you know, somebody start a fight with them, so they would do it at night. And um, it's been looked at twice by the government. They came up with nothing. Uh, we looked at um, what the mountain is made of, which is a, a, a quartz. Uh, we looked at uh, seismograph uh, in the area of um, maybe the earth, earth shifting, you know, or, or tectonic plates moving a little bit and causing these sparks, but they're not sparks. They don't come up as a spark. They come up, they come out of nowhere. You could be looking at a spot and uh, whether you're looking through infrared or binoculars and you, you know, you're looking at a spot and this thing just comes out of nowhere, just grows. It just like comes out of the dark and gets to a certain size and then it just starts moving around and there'll be another one inside of it. It'll be three and four or five off to the right and there'll be three or four over here and then one down here and then they'll all go away and it'll be like one or two and then it'll go back to one. I mean, there's no rhyme or reason to them. Uh-huh. So uh, we're going to go down this time, and I think what we're going to do is, and I'm, I'm going to expect some help from somebody that I just learned knows a lot about TV stuff, um, to hook a camera up that we can keep running from start to finish and stay the whole night mm-hmm. and get it recorded and mounted on top of the truck so nobody can trip over it or knock it over or something like that. So it's out of the way, and it'll record to a, you know, to a, to a, a recorder in the truck and that we can watch it also on the, uh, the, the, our uh, computer mounted in the truck. So uh, it's a very interesting case. It, it's, there's one group, I guess, that went down and, and looked at it a couple years ago, and they said it's plasma, and they can create the same effect in their microwave in the kitchen. Okay. Uh, for some reason, I just don't buy that one too much. I'm, I'm not a real fan of plasma, uh, although plasma does exist. I, I just don't think this is the case because um, why would it change color? Well, you said this has got a solid shape, too, when you looked under infrared, right? Correct. Yep. When you're looking through infrared, when you're looking uh, naked eye or binoculars, you have like a fuzzy a ball, but it's fuzzy. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? It, it's got an edge. Right. 
you're looking through infrared, you're looking at a perfectly round ball. Okay, well, plasma wouldn't be that then, because plasma wouldn't have a solid object behind it. That's correct. So producing it in this microwave might be a fun thing to try, but I don't know. I just don't excite me with that. Well, that's, that's a very interesting one, actually. I'm definitely going to have to come down there and see that one. Oh, yeah, it's it's really something to see. Like I said, talk about someone being skeptical, man. I was all the way down. I kept saying to myself, what a waste of time. What a waste <laughs> a waste of this what a waste of that and then when i saw him I, I was i was yelling at the guys you know the camera's rolling you got this up is this running is you taking pictures you know and uh I, I i really got excited when i saw him and they were there for a long time i mean we we started seeing them about 7 30 at night quarter of eight maybe and then by um about 23 30 hours they were pretty much gone now they say from talking to people down here which hundreds of people come to look at this there are three lookout points we were just at one but the lookout points are packed. I mean, people bring coolers, cameras, binoculars, and they just set up for the evening. But it's really something to see. I mean, it's it's something where there's you can't draw any scientific conclusion, but it's factual. You know, it's really uh, it's astounding to see these lights. They and you just, got videos of these, you said then. Yeah, we got videos and we got still pictures, uh, infrared. Wow. Yeah. So this time when we go down, though, we want to have some kind of television set up where we can turn the camera on and let it run and just record the whole nine yards from start to finish. Right. Uh, where we can time it, date it, and, uh, you know, how often are they coming out? Is there any sequence? Are they coming out in the same areas? Are they starting in the same location? Or are they just random? Mm-hmm. Uh, is there any time lapse between them? Like, do they come out every 30 seconds? Or, you know, anything we can get. Uh, to help us, you know, try to come, you know, find an answer to this, which is really, it's quite something to see. That amazing. Say, like I was telling you off air, I can probably give you a hand with some of this stuff. Yeah, I'm hoping. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely going to be a trip this summer because you got my interest and you know, I got the equipment to check it out. (laughs) Yeah. And, and we, we really want to get that set up on our truck because there's a couple other things that would, it would really work out with when you have a, when you have a TV setup or, or a video setup where you can set it on something to watch, you can go about doing other things, and you still know that there's a set of eyes basically on, on what you're looking for. Exactly. Whether it's, whether it's a Bigfoot uh, sighting or, or, or uh, strange lights or something in the sky or you know something in a field or even a house where there's supposed to be paranormal activity. One of the things that always makes me a little crazy, and, and it's, it's my lack of paranormal experience that I relate this. I find it hard. If, if I was going to do a perfect investigation, I would set everything up with cameras all over the place. It wouldn't be a doorway or a window that wasn't being watched by something. Exactly. I'm the exact same way. Group, and I know some groups do that, but they'll, they'll do like a room. Well, if I got noise coming up on the roof, I'm going to have, I want cameras to the roof. I want cameras to the back, sides of the house, front of the house, inside the house, outside the house. I want cameras everywhere. Now that's a little expensive. I understand that. But I think if you have camera that you can, you know, or two set up on on your vehicle or in the vehicle or outside the vehicle where you can watch areas that you're no, normally not going to be able to see, you can put your efforts toward, you know, interior or an area in the interior. And um, another thing is I think when I see, you know, somebody running the camera in the room and they're looking for something to happen in the room, but they have the lights out. I mean, the lights are on, rather. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be better to have the lights out and use infrared? Yeah, infrared. I'm a I'm a firm believer in real, true infrared, not infrared with IR emitters, because you can get false readings. Infrared that sees in the dark. Correct. Right. Uh, yeah, I can help you out with that. I'm sure. I mean, I got that 16 camera system that'll catch anything. 
Oh, that's neat. You know, those are some of the cases, uh, you know, that I've worked on, that we are working on. Um, we try to keep everything uh, as up-to-date as we can. We did uh, Prescott Landing, which we truly believe there was a landing there. I mean, even the Air Force said that, and it's still in Project Blue Book. Hmm. It's actually got its own number. So is that a factual landing case? I would say yes. Uh, was Carbondale Lantern UFO incident a lantern? I would say no. I'm not saying it was a UFO. But what I am saying is it was not a lantern. It was a magic lantern. Fell out of the sky, landed the wrong way against the gravity, and then jumped around underwater. Yeah, correct. <laughs> <laughs> and then they pulled it out with a huge lift and a semi. Yeah, that, that makes so much sense. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and I just, um, oh, there, there are a lot of interesting cases out there, and, and a lot of them aren't our cases. I mean, they're cases that are presented to us to look at or to, you know, maybe comment on, and... I, I think, uh, you know, if you just keep taking a professional and scientific look at this stuff, you know, eventually you'll get factual, credible, and scientific evidence. Exactly. You know, and start to document these occurrences. And then you can let the interested parties, you know, let them look at it and let them better understand and draw their own conclusions. You know, I'm not going to say that's a definite UFO. Uh, what I see is a light going across the sky from one side to the other in a matter of a second or less. Well, we don't have anything like that, but I, I'm not going to stand there and say, well, that's a UFO. I will stand there and say it's a fast walker. Yeah, well, what I, like I was telling you earlier, too, I can't tell you what it is, but I can tell you what it isn't. That's kind of how I do it. And that's uh, the real way to do it. I mean, you know, you... Unless, you, unless you've got it in your hand or it's parked in your garage, you know, uh, you've got to have some kind of responsibility in your investigation, and you've got to use factual and unbiased evidence, and you've got to use the proper gathering techniques to evaluate and investigate. Actually, yeah, like I say, you know as well as I do when people come out, so-called experts, and they go there, they do something like, it is, and they announce what it is, and they say, that's it, period. You know, and they're full of crap. Well, yeah, uh, but, you know, there's some people you just can't say that to because they really believe what they saw is what they saw, and you're not going to talk them out of it. Oh, exactly. I, I mean, I've had people say that, you know, what they saw was an, a UFO flying across the sky up in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And I'm showing them reports on my computer in my truck uh, of, from NASA uh, where they're reporting a meteor sighting at the exact same time over the exact same area. And, so, and they're wondering why they didn't see the meteor the same time they were watching the UFO then, right? Yeah, not really. Just <laughs> well, Butch, we're, we're actually reaching our one-hour point here. Uh, we have so much more to cover with you yet. We're definitely going to have to have you on again. Anytime. Uh, anything else you want to say in closing? Your websites again or anything? Or any information or contact info? They can, if they go on, if they want to contact me, uh, when they go on to the webpage, which is www.ufo, uh, I'm sorry, www.pafosearch.com, all one word, and they, uh, go to the contact us button on the website and just hit click that. There's, uh, it'll give them information on how to contact me. It'll, it'll show, uh, an email. There'll be an email address if they want to email direct or if they want to put their comments or questions in and just hit the submit button and I I get it. And we try to answer all our email within a 24-hour period. We are a partner site with the UFO Research Center of uh, Research of uh, North America, UFORNA. Uh, they're located down in Georgia. Great group. Been around a long time. Great guys. Know what they're doing. Kind of have the same mission statement we do. And um, if there's anybody else, if anything else they're looking for on the site, we put researchers' links on there. They can go in there, and if they're looking for something or a certain uh, researcher group, I list as many as I can. There's a lot of good groups out there. There's a lot of good investigators out there. Uh, if they can't find an investigator in your area, I had a lady from Quebec that was looking for one just a few weeks ago, and uh, she couldn't find an investigator to make a report. And uh, 
I made a couple phone calls and got an investigator to call her, so we'll help you out with that. Uh, we'll basically help you out with anything we can. Well, that's cool. You're full service, too. I mean, a lot of places are so set in their ways. They only do certain things. I mean, you'll help anybody with any type of issue, actually. Yeah. Well, like I said, uh, whether it's a case or just information, we'll help as much as we can. Okay. Sounds good. Well, it was, uh, like I say, it was a great time talking with you, and uh, we'll have you on again real soon. Okay. Thank you, John. All right. All right. You're listening to Thresholds Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show tonight. We'll be back next week with an all-new show Sunday night, 7.30 on. Also, you can catch us Friday nights, 10 to 11, theedgeonair.com. Red